today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, and the flowers fade. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Gene. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And uh, last week, we kicked off a brand new sermon series on the book of Genesis. And, and this should take us pretty much through the end of the summer. And we're calling it In the Beginning. In the beginning. Because as human beings, we don't just exist in vacuums. Our origins inform our identities. Our origins inform our identities. So understanding where we come from, how, why we were made, these things define for us our meaning and our purpose for our lives now. And this is why in so many of the popular stories that we grew up reading and watching in movies, there's often this kind of pivotal inflection point in the hero's journey where the hero finds out something about his or her family of origin, and often it changes everything for them. And it often produces kind of this new identity struggle. So Luke Skywalker, he learns about his Jedi legacy and about who his father is, and that's really the struggle of the entire journey. Harry Potter learns that he's not only a wizard, but he's the boy who lived, and that defines kind of his struggle going forward. Shang-Chi tries to escape from his true identity as the heir of the Ten Rings, and we see Simba doing something similar as he runs away, escapes Pride Rock, trying to escape his past. Where we come from often defines who we are. So my wife and I, we are expecting our fourth boy in, in, in just a few weeks. Pray for us. Uh, pray for her. And while part of me is definitely dreading kind of the loss of sleep and the exhaustion that comes with a newborn, I'm also really excited to meet this new person and to love him. And even though it's been, it's been almost a decade, I still remember that moment when I first 
became a father, and I, I met my son, Andy. I had my phone ready because I was going to capture those first moments of life. But when he came out, I was just so overwhelmed and emotional that I just totally forgot to record. And the nurse was like, Dad, Dad, record! So I did. And, and in that short video, you hear him crying, but you hear my wife and I crying louder <laughs> because we were just so overwhelmed with emotion and we loved him so much. And, and nowadays, he, he's, just, he's getting into a lot of trouble and we're, we're constantly having to correct him and, and, and often yell at him. And sometimes what we do is we show him this video and we say, see, you are loved. <laughs> you, were, you were born into love. And, and, and we want to remind him of how loved he is. Well, the first thing that we learn about God is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what we see is that the universe has a beginning and a creator. It didn't come into existence through some cosmic accident. But God existed. He created the universe. So what that means is that God is bigger and greater than the universe. He predates the universe and he created the universe. So verse 1, the way the Bible begins, it is a grand declaration of the greatness of God. Now, I was talking to my sons Andy and Caleb about it this past week. We have this de devotional book that we do, and it's kind of like based on science, and it talks kind of connects science to God. And we were talking about space. And I told them, imagine that the sun was the size of a basketball. I think I've given this illustration before. Um, do you know how big the earth would be? If the sun was the size of a basketball and you were to scale it down, the earth would be the size of a sprinkle on an ice cream cone or a nerd candy. And it would be, to this scale, 30 yards away. So if I'm holding the sun here, the, the, the nerd candy would be way outside these glass doors into the vestibule. And we're talking about just how big the universe is. And I said, do you know what the closest star to the sun is? And they said, like true nerds, Proxima Centauri. Um, I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Proxima Centauri, the closest star to our solar system, would be 4.2 light years away. And on our scale, it would be 4,000 miles away. So if I'm holding the sun in my hand, Proxima Centauri, the next closest star, would be in Rome, Italy. If you think about the sheer vastness of the universe, it's beyond comprehension. Because between the sun and the next closest star, Proxima Centauri, do you know what there is? There's a few planets. And that's it. That's it. It's just sheer, vast emptiness. It's beyond comprehension, just empty space. But did you know that in our Milky Way galaxy, there are 100 billion stars? That's just in our galaxy. 
100 billion stars. So think 100 billion basketballs. We can't even comprehend a number as big as 100 billion. 100 billion basketballs, each separated by 4,000 miles, that would be to scale the size of our Milky Way galaxy. My next question, how many galaxies are there in the universe? Well, astronomers estimate that there are two trillion galaxies in the universe. Two trillion galaxies. And Psalm 8 tells us that God created the galaxies with his fingers. With his fingers. Not with his mighty arms or his broad shoulders. God created the universe, the galaxies, with his fingers. So the way that my children make Lego sets, that is how God created this universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is far greater than we can even begin to comprehend. And what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 is that God is not only a creator, but he is a great king. He's a great king. If I were to pass out paper and pens right now, or if I were to pass out kind of a lump of Play-Doh, and I would say, make me something, draw me something, form me something, and each of you draw something or you mold something out of the clay, whatever you draw, whatever you form, that would be yours. You would have complete control over it. That would belong to you. In the same way, then, everything that God has made, it belongs to him. It's his. He gets to make the rules. He has every right, then, to determine for his creation what is good and what is not good, what is right and what is wrong. As a creator and as a king, he has the right to govern and rule his creation as he sees fit. So I think maybe the most important lesson we can learn from Genesis 1 is this. God is the creator and we are not. We are creatures. Therefore, he reigns over us as king. And this is evident in Genesis 1. I want to point out just three things from Genesis today. For those of you taking notes, it's the king's masterpiece, the king's mandate, and the king's mission. Just those three things. Masterpiece, mandate, mission. First, the king's masterpiece. As we said, there are trillions upon trillions of stars in our galaxy. And yet, what the Bible says is that this tiny speck of rock that we call Earth... This is God's pièce de résistance. This is God's magnum opus. This is his masterpiece. Genesis, it, it begins with an earth that is formless and void. There's nothing there. In verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, and God creates the heavens and the earth through his word. 
And we see imagery of the Father, the Spirit, the Son, the triune God creating this world out of nothing. He brings chaos to order, nothing to something, disparate and separate to unified. And a prominent theme in this chapter is that of power, dominion. It's about God's kingship over creation. So in the first three days, God creates kingdoms by separating. God creates kingdoms by separating. I think we have a chart here. On day one, he separates the light from the darkness and he creates the kingdoms of day and night. On day two, he separates the water from the sky and he creates the kingdoms of sky and water. On day three, he separates the sea from the land and he creates the kingdom of dry land. So the first three days, what we see is that God is separating and creating spheres of life. And on days four through six, what is he doing? Is he's installing kings for those kingdoms. On day four, he tasks the sun to govern the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. On day five, he creates the fish and the birds to fill and rule over the kingdoms of the sea and sky. And on day six, he creates the land animals and humans to fill and rule over the kingdom of the dry land. The structure here is just unmistakable. It's so clear. Christopher Walken, the scholar who was here last week, he taught on our Curious panel. He wrote a book on Genesis, and here's what he says about Genesis 1. He says, apart from the Psalms in the Bible, it is the most structured chapter in the entire Bible, apart from the Psalms. And this is why many scholars today, they say that Genesis 1 may not be a literal account of how God created the world, but more of a song or a poem celebrating why God created the world. He created this world to be a masterpiece. He created it with utmost care and precision. You know, in other ancient Near Eastern religions, you have creation accounts where there's some sort of chaos or struggle that births creation. But in Genesis 1, we don't see any of that. We see God meticulously planning, carrying out creation to be his kingdom masterpiece. And as he's creating the world, God, he can't help himself. He can't help but to stop and admire his handiwork. Again and again, we see in Genesis 1 this refrain, and God saw that it was good. That word for good in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's good, it, it's, it's, it means beautiful. God creates and God admires the beauty of his creation every step of the way. So what we see in this chapter is that God is a great king and he made this world lovingly, carefully, precisely, meticulously, and beautifully. And the very last thing that God makes is man and woman in his own image. 
And here he uses the plural when he talks about this in verse 26. He says, let us make man in our image. Why? Why the plural? Why the plural? You know, some theologians say that this is God using Trinitarian language to refer to himself in the plural. Others say that it kind of fits with this theme of kingdom in this chapter. It's kind of like a royal we. Right? So if you ever watch like The Crown on, on, on Netflix, right? The, sometimes the sovereign will refer to herself as we or in the plural because of their greatness. And maybe that's what God is doing. God is so great that he refers to himself in the plural. And, but, you know, I think both can kind of work here. God is one God in three persons. He's unity in plurality. And he creates mankind in his image to reflect this. Mankind is also created to showcase unity within a plurality. God could have just created men. God could have just created women. But in his beautiful design, he creates both. Male and female, he created them. And they together complete the reflection of the image of God. You don't have the complete image of God if one is missing. It's not that man is created in the image of God and woman is created in the image of man. It's that male and female together complete the image of God. And God blesses them and he gives them a mandate. He commands them to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue, have dominion over it. He calls them to rule over his creation. Here's how Meredith Klein describes this mandate. He says this, All the creation of the six days is consecrated to man as the one set over all the works of God's hands, as the hierarchical structure of Genesis 1 shows. But man himself in turn is consecrated to the one who set all things under his feet. Man is king over creation, but he's a vassal king. He's a servant king. He reigns as one under the creator's authority, obligated to devote his kingdom to the great king. And through that consecration of man to the creator, which is required in the Sabbath stipulation, all that belongs to the six days is consecrated to the Sabbath, Lord. In the Sabbath, sanctified unto God, all the works of the six workdays leading to and issuing in the Sabbath are hallowed unto God. The pattern of ascending dominion in the creation record is thus designed to teach the ultimate truth that all created reality is under the creator's lordship, that God's kingdom embraces all creation. So here's what Klein is saying. He's saying man and woman are called to rule God's creation. They are servant rulers under the authority of the great king. So what God does is he gives his creation to man and woman. But you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't sign over the deed to them. There's no transfer of ownership. Creation belongs to God. And mankind is called to steward, protect, and cultivate that creation. Man is never to forget that God remains the owner. God remains the great king over all creation. 
So let's say I were to ask one of you to babysit my children, okay? I would give them to you. I would entrust them into your care, but I'm not transferring ownership to you. I'm not, you're not adopting them unless you want to and we can talk because I have a lot. No, they're, they're still mine. And if you treated them badly or if you hurt them in any way, that would be dishonoring to me and it would be wrong. It would hurt me. We are called by God to rule over his creation the way he rules with highest care, with love, and a deep respect and admiration for the world. And I don't just mean loving the environment. This is way bigger than that. The, the cultural mandate, it extends to all of culture. The way we engage with society, the way we engage with fellow human beings, but also, yes, the broader created world. So what does it mean to be a good ruler like God? It means to care. It means to pay attention. It means to commit my time, my energy, my efforts into making sure that others are healthy and thriving. It means putting the interests of others ahead of my own. You know, isn't it interesting, and we'll talk more about this next week, isn't it interesting how God creates the first woman? You know, how did he create Adam? He took dust and he breathed life into the dust. But he doesn't do that with the woman. Instead, he puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes one of Adam's ribs, and out of the rib, he makes the first woman, Eve. And this is symbolic. Adam's relationship with his wife, with Eve, and her very life, they come at a sacrifice to him. Loving his wife, being in community with her, means giving up a part of himself for her. This is the kind of rulers that we are meant to be. We're meant to rule not by getting others to serve us, not by getting our way all the time, but to sacrificially give of ourselves to love and to serve others. That is the type of rule we are to exercise. But here's the problem. It's pretty clear as we look around our world today, you don't have to look very far, that it falls short of this utopian vision of Genesis 1. You know, chapter 1, it ends with God seeing all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But when we see the world, it's immediately evident that the world is not very good. It's not. And I think a lot of that is, it, it's, all of that is on us. We have not fulfilled our mandate to be faithful servant kings. We have not cared for this world or for one another. There's evil, there's ugliness, there's death, there's disease, there's destruction everywhere. And this is because of sin. You know, one of the primary effects of sin, it's a reversal of creation. You know, creation goes <clears throat> from darkness to light, from emptiness 
to fullness, from nothingness to beauty, from formlessness to order. Sin results in a reversal of this order. Creation becomes unraveled because of sin, and sin returns to darkness. It empties that which was once full and beautiful. It ruins beauty. It turns order into chaos. You know, I talked about this in my Earth Day sermon a few years ago, but if you read the Exodus account of the plagues, uh, the plagues against Egypt, it's essentially a reversal of the creation days in Genesis 1. And it's showing that God's judgment against sin is brought through a reversal of the, the creation blessing. But here's the good news, is that the Bible is the story of God redeeming creation. It's a story of God fixing everything that we break. It's a story of God redeeming us and all of creation. It's no accident there then that on the cross, Jesus receives the opposite of the creation blessing. And did you know that on the cross, the same elements are there that we see in Genesis 1? You know, in Genesis 1, what does God do with water? He, he pools it. He collects it. He puts it in the right place. But in Genesis, in, on the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst. There is no water for him that brings him life. In creation, God brings life. While on the cross, God descends into death. Creation, it begins with formlessness and emptiness. It ends with fullness. On the cross, the reverse takes place. Jesus Christ, who had the fullness of God, he empties himself and he becomes formless and void. In Genesis, God commands the light to shine into the darkness. He says, let there be light. But on the cross, we see this darkness descend and cover the whole earth for three hours. In Genesis, God builds Adam from the dust. He breathes life into the dust. This second Adam, Jesus, he's crushed into the dust and he breathes his last as he dies. In Genesis, God blesses the man and woman whom he lovingly created, but Jesus receives no blessing. He actually receives the curse that the man and woman should have received for their unfaithfulness. In creation, God speaks and there's the response. It's immediate creation. But Jesus on the cross, he speaks. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the response? Silent decreation. Jesus died to fix what we had broken, to rule the way that we failed to rule, to use his power to serve and save and cause creation to flourish. Jesus didn't just die to pay our penalty. He fulfilled the creation mandate for us that we failed to obey. We were unfaithful servant kings, but Jesus is the faithful servant king whose mission is to save us and all creation. He forgives us. He frees us. And all we need to do is believe in him.
and repent of our sin. And now, as Christians, we can rule creation, not just as God's image bearers, but as God's adopted royal children. I want to close uh, my message with just two implications. If everything I just said is true, if Genesis 1 is true, I just want to give, there are many, but I just want to give two implications of ways that we can think and apply this to our lives. First, Genesis 1 talks about power. So we should ask ourselves, what kind of power are we seeking? You know, what we're seeing today is that Christianity in America is losing a certain kind of power. It's, it's losing a, an influence, access, a, a cultural relevance. Christianity is no longer in a place of political dominance. It doesn't have the social leverage that it once had. You know, even as recently as like 10 years ago, I would tell a non-Christian, I'm a pastor, and the response would be like, oh, I should watch what I say in front of you. And the implication is this, as a Christian, as a, as a spiritual leader, as a pastor, the assumption was that I was more moral than that person. And that was the assumption. And there was a kind of respect and admiration that went with that. But today, more often than not, the opposite is true. People don't assume that I'm more moral, but they assume that I'm part of the problem. They hear all about these scandals and these hypocritical Christian leaders with moral failing. They, they don't see me as more moral, but they see me as part of a system that's intolerant. It's perpetrating these unhealthy and old-fashioned, antiquated standards uh, that are regressive and hurtful. And this is continuing to be the trend. You know, in every generation in American history, most people were raised in church. That's just culturally, that's what America was like. 30 years ago, I think 90% of Americans identified as Christians. So whether you went every Sunday or you went every once in a while, you had exposure to church. And a lot of times, just natural, and this is kind of a lot of our story too, you go to college and it's, you just leave the church, right? Because it's kind of your parents' faith, not your own. So you leave the church, you enter the work, work, workplace and, and you kind of leave the church. But what happened throughout American history is this. As people got older, they got married, they started families, a lot of people who were raised in the church came back to the church. Why? Because even if they didn't necessarily believe it for themselves, they wanted their children to have Christian influences in their lives. Even if they didn't really value it personally, they wanted their children raised with these Christian principles instilled in them. And that's been the case with every generation in American history. So the next generation then would be raised in the church. But here's what we're not seeing today. Millennials who are getting married and having kids are not returning to the church. They're not. Because they no longer see the value of Christian principles and values and morals. 
So what that means is this. My children's generation, Generation Alpha, it will be the most secular generation that this country has ever seen. And that's going to be this, the case with your children as well. And a lot of American Christians are freaking out about this. They're desperately trying to cling to power and cultural influence at all costs. Because they're afraid that losing political dominance is somehow correlated to God's mission and God's kingdom. But what they're forgetting is that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this earth. Do you remember that story when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's arrested? An entire Roman battalion shows up, 300 soldiers to arrest one man, Jesus. And Peter whips out a sword and he charges and he cuts off someone's ear. He's like, let's go. And Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away. And he heals the ear. And what Jesus is making very clear here is that his kingdom is not of this world. The way that Jesus wants us to exercise power, it's not by overpowering our enemies. It's not by subduing them. But it's by using our power to heal and to love and to proclaim the message of an altogether different but far greater kingdom. In the New Testament, Christians are never called to rise up against Roman oppression. Let's go. Let's overthrow them. They're called to live faithfully, to love others, to put the interests of others before themselves. So may I encourage us, Christians, don't freak out. Don't panic. It's okay. Christianity began in the margins. And in the margins is precisely where Christianity thrives. Because it's when Christianity is in the margins that we can, we're forced to embrace our exilic identity and faithfully serve God and love our neighbors. So that's the first implication. The second and last is this, and I think many of us need this reminder today. It's this, remember who you are. You know, as Christians, we're not general image, we're not just general image bearers of God, but we are adopted children of God. All people, all of humanity is created in God's image, but Christians have been adopted into the royal family. So, can I ask you this week, remember that you are royalty. You are royalty. You know, let's say you're interviewing at Microsoft, right? You're nervous. Why? Because of all the tech layoffs. And you really want to make a good impression. So you walk through those doors and you're just like, what, how am I going to come off? How am I going to impress the people who are asking me questions? But you know who has no fear walking into Microsoft? Bill Gates' kids. Why? Because their dad is the founder of the company. Are you, are you stressed by your job? Is it giving you a hard time going to work? Well, your dad doesn't own the company. 
Your dad owns the universe. So no matter what you're struggling with, what you're afraid of, lift up your head. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You hear me? You have nothing to fear. You fear no one. And don't you dare let anyone tell you that you don't matter, that you are not important, that you are not loved. Because your father is the great king of this universe. Never forget that you are royalty. You are the beloved son or daughter of the great king. And that should give you a boldness and a confidence, no matter what you're facing. And it also gives you purpose. It gives you tremendous purpose. What do I mean? Well, if we are God's royal children, there are two approaches we can take in life. I call it the William approach and the Harry approach. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm not making a judgment on either of them because the British royal family is human, sinful, and dysfunctional. Um, but in general, you can be like William. You can be a dutiful member of the royal family. You can live your life to serve the throne. You can do everything you can to further the kingdom and the interests of the kingdom. You can live your life to please the king, to please the throne. And that's your purpose. Or you can take the hairy approach. You can try to escape your royal identity. And you can try to make a name for yourself. I want to ask you, what is your purpose? How are you living out your royal identity? I was talking this week uh, in, in my CGs. Uh, we were talking about The Lion King. Um, I was saying how much I hated the remake. But there's this classic scene, okay? And it, no, it's not the sad one. There's this classic scene where Simba has run away, and he's trying to escape his past. He rejects his claim to the throne, and he's living in denial. He's living in fear. He's living in shame because of his past. And he's trying to forget it all. He's trying to live this carefree life, hakuna matata, no worries, no problems, no purpose. And what turns it around for Simba? Well, his father Mufasa shows up in a vision. And he tells him this, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are my son. I am with you. Go, you are a king. Go. Friends, the great king of Genesis 1 says the same to you. Remember who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. I am with you. You are royalty. Go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder today, this reminder of your greatness, but not just of your greatness, but also your goodness, because we failed to be faithful servant kings.
but yet you forgive us and you redeem us. So help us to live lives of gratitude and resuming our posture as faithful servant kings. Help us to exercise authority and rule the way you do by caring for your creation and loving it. Help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.